This is Yudah Cohen, Vision Movement, and you are listening to the Next Stage Podcast. History has definitely been in motion. It is in motion. We're living in incredible times, experiencing major events of historical significance, both for the people of Israel and for the world at large. And I thought it a good idea to invite a good friend and colleague, uh, Justin Ellis, to co-host this episode with me. Regular listeners of The Next Stage are already familiar with Justin. He's the director of Feel for Truth, where he does great educational work in helping Jewish young professionals to develop a national consciousness. And being in that role obviously plugs Justin into the pro-Israel diaspora Jewish community. So he definitely brings a perspective that's an important piece of the conversation we need to be having right now. Uh, Justin, welcome to the show. Shalom, Yehuda. Thanks for having me back. So before we get into some of the major events of the last couple of weeks, I'd like to mention that this past Sunday was the 29th of November on the Christian calendar, which is actually a very weird quasi-holiday in Israel and I think also in pro-Israel spaces in the diaspora. For those who don't know, the 29th of November, uh, which is called in Israel Kaftet November, which is already a weird synthesis of how Jews mark our dates on our own Hebrew calendar, uh, with a month, you know, November, in this case, from the Christian calendar, Kaftet November, like Kaftet is our way of saying the 29th of the month, like Kaf is the Hebrew letter that is uh, in the Gematria, the equivalent to 20, and Tet is the Hebrew letter that has a numerical value of nine. So when we say Kaftet November, we mean the 29th of November, but it's very rare for anyone to do that on a foreign calendar. Like, you know, we do that on our own calendar, right? It's very weird for us to do that with anybody else's calendar. And this day, of course, uh, this strange day, marks United Nations General Assembly Resolution 181, also known as the UN Partition Plan for Palestine, uh, which in 1947 recommended to divide our land into two separate states. So Justin, how do you see this date treated by the organized pro-Israel community in the diaspora? And do you feel that the overall consensus is that the UN quote unquote gave the Jewish people a state? That's a really good question. I'm not sure if the consensus is that the UN gave Israel a state, but a lot of people in the United States in the sort of organized pro-Israel movement, Zionist movement in this country, very much relate to the partition plan and you know that resolution, the date in which uh, it was passed. Uh, the way in which it is commemorated and celebrated, I think is indicative that it is sort of part and parcel of like the broader narrative that Israel and its supporters hold on to as far as a basis of foreign legitimacy for us to even have that state. So while the resolution itself may not feel in their hearts and minds as, you know, sort of the uh, what actually gave Israel state, it certainly was sort of a foreign hexer that made people more comfortable with it, or certainly in the decades to come is now part and parcel of like the broader narrative, the story we tell ourselves about ourselves in this space, and certainly to the outside world. You know, I think it's just as problematic, you know, to be honest, we can get into sort of, you know, the differences in UN resolutions and how that plays a factor. But I know you and I have discussed in the past, and we've had multiple conversations, the idea in which Jews Israel, you know, the nation of Israel taking sort of its marching orders or the basis for its own decisions and legitimacy on outside forces that don't even have our interests in mind or not representative of our identity, of our aspirations, of our thoughts. Uh, you know, I definitely think that is part of kind of our inherited trauma over the centuries of exile, in which we're always appealing to the authority and the sympathy of others 
in order to have permission to live as ourselves. Right, no, I definitely agree with that. I, I would like to give listeners just like a few, a few like crucial points to understand about this resolution and what it actually is versus like the mythology built around it in pro-Israel spaces. I mean, first of all, it's really important to understand that the partition plan was a United Nations General Assembly resolution, not a UN Security Council resolution. Uh, this should be significant to anyone who attributes any moral legitimacy to international law. And anyone who sees international law as anything more legitimate than a tool for big countries to push around small countries. Uh, and that's because only the UN Security Council is officially empowered with any legal authority to make decisions which member governments are expected to comply with, you know, according to the UN Charter meaning the General Assembly is really doesn't have any teeth. I mean, it might be more democratic than the Security Council, but it doesn't have any actual power. Uh, and beyond that, I think it's important to understand that General Assembly Resolution 181 was, according to its own language, merely a recommendation. It's in no way legally binding uh, on any nation or group. And although it was accepted by the official Jewish leadership, the Zionist leadership that had built the institutions that would later become part of our state, they built our army, they built the general infrastructure. And they also were a national bourgeoisie that collaborated with British imperialism, very much stood in the way of our struggle for freedom. And that resolution was actually rejected by the Jewish fighters who had put their lives on the line to free our country from British rule. They, of course, rejected this resolution for obvious reasons. I think it took away from the Jewish people much of the land that they had fought for, much of the land that they had killed and died for in their struggle against the British regime here. Uh, it was also rejected by the Palestinian leadership. It was also rejected by the broader leadership of the Arab states. But it's important for us to understand that when we're talking about the Jewish acceptance of this resolution, because often I think in Israel, in Israeli society, and in pro-Israel spaces, you know, I hear this argument being used that we, the Jews, you know, we Israel accepted the resolution, you know, we played ball, we cooperated, whereas, you know, the Palestinians, the Arab world, they rejected it, you know, they missed an opportunity, you know, and we were the good guys and they were the bad guys. And I think that's a very problematic approach because first of all, the country from the river to the sea was liberated by the Jewish fighters who had fought against British rule. Even according to British documents, they left Palestine because of Jewish terrorism. That means we beat them in a war. But then you have this national bourgeoisie that immediately took power, betrayed the revolution by agreeing, at least in principle, to discard much of the territory that we had freed from British rule and accept really a truncated nation state in a tiny sliver of our land. Uh, so if anything, I would look at this resolution as not a pro-Israel resolution, but actually an anti-Israel resolution because it sought to shrink the size of the Jewish state and internationalize our capital, Jerusalem, essentially robbing the Jewish people of most of the lands that were A, central to our identity, and B, won from British rule in a nearly 10-year urban guerrilla struggle. And of course, this resolution wasn't enforced in any way, shape, or form, because uh, once we were attacked by several surrounding armies, uh, two of which, by the way, Egypt and Transjordan, were armed, trained, and led by British officers, something that's important to point out, the UN did nothing to interfere with what appeared to be really the imminent destruction of our country's Jewish population. But when the tide of battle turned and Israel began beating back the invading armies, 
the UN dispatched Count Volk Bernadotte to come as a mediator. Uh, he did everything in his power to limit our successes, to prevent our military from being able to act in certain situations. Uh, he tried to internationalize Jerusalem, and he was, of course, eventually gunned down in Jerusalem by the same Jewish underground that had defeated the British. And what's interesting to me, um, the mythology that we have a state at least partially due to the UN resolution, and you even see it in Exodus. If you watch the movie Exodus, it's a big dramatic moment where the UN is voting on whether or not to give the Jews a state, right? Whether or not to partition Palestine. What's really problematic about this psychologically is I, I think it was initially kind of hyped up in Israeli society in order to legitimize the rule of the Mapai party of Prime Minister David Ben-Gurion, because uh, obviously Ben-Gurion, Mapai, Haganah, they were not very active in the struggle for freedom against the British, but they were very active in lobbying the international community to gain support for the notion of a Jewish nation state. So I think to create this myth that we have a state because the UN voted to give us one really was initially propagated for the purpose of legitimizing Ben-Gurion's rule, Mapai's rule. And, but I think long-term, this has had a very negative psychological effect on, on the Israeli population, because if you tell subsequent generations that we have a state because young Jews were willing to fight, kill, and die for the freedom of our people and homeland, then obviously the lesson that our young people will take from that is that if we want to continue to enjoy self-determination in our land, we have to be willing to sacrifice and fight for what we believe to belong to us. But if you tell subsequent generations that we have a state because the international community approved of our behavior, liked what we were doing, that we were able to successfully lobby them and uh, convince them to support our right to self-determination, then I think the message that kind of is transmitted is that in order for us to maintain our state, in order for us to continue to enjoy some kind of political independence here, we need to maintain international support. And I think that could be a very detrimental attitude in the Israeli uh, collective psyche. Agreed. And a couple of things to add to that, or I think that's really important that you brought up, I want to further emphasize, is that when it comes to the UN and it comes to General Assembly resolutions, all of them, not just UN 181, the 1947 partition plan, are recommendations. They are exclusively up to the parties in question to actually implement them or whether to act upon them. So that includes the partition plan. It also includes, and this is a broader discussion, certainly as it pertains to Palestinian national identity and some of their core grievances, uh, UN Resolution 194, which is commonly known today as the right of return. Same thing with UN Resolution 242, the whole concept of land for peace following the Six Day War in 1967. You know, none of the parties in question, whether it's us, the Palestinians, or any of the Arab countries, had to abide by this whatsoever. So, to your point, to give legitimacy to something that, you know, is merely a recommendation, uh, I think that's problematic in its own right. But also, even when I teach, when I'm, you know, educating in Fuel for Truth and with different groups, I really try to emphasize to people not to get into sort of the ditches and the dirt of a legal argument. You know, you can talk legalese in any way that's going to make your point seem more legitimate or another person can kind of just throw this law or this fact in your face and you're going to go nowhere. Uh, at the end of the day, we have to realize that this was the use of foreign entities to influence, you know, what was going on in our conflict, in our land, you know, certainly as it pertained to us and the Palestinians. And I think that's a much healthier focus of where this conversation needs to go. Uh, not to mention, as you described before, as far as the state of Israel, kind of always looking 
to sort of acknowledge outside forces as being responsible for the creation of our state, or at least even presenting that message, you know, it doesn't even begin with 1947. You can take this back to you know, the end of World War I, 1917 with the Balfour Declaration. You know, even three years ago during its centennial, you had Prime Minister Netanyahu, you know, celebrating or commemorating, you know, this uh, 100 year anniversary with the British government, the same British government that would then occupy Palestine, which would then institute laws that were very uh, detrimental to Jewish national aspirations and Jewish civil rights in Palestine. And obviously what would lead to, as you described, you know, a guerrilla war that we waged against them to end their occupation of our country. Uh, so all of this, I think, is very you know, detrimental and problematic, not only from an Israeli standpoint, a Jewish standpoint, but also keep in mind the majority of conversations that we're having are certainly the issues we're trying to resolve are not between you know, Jews and Europeans or the United States and Europeans, right? When we're talking about Israel and its conflict and certainly who we're trying to gain legitimacy from in today's world, it's with Palestinians and it's with Arabs. And the more in which we tend to hype up our sort of international bona fides as being a legitimate state because of British colonialism, even without using that language explicitly, or a UN partition and a resolution coming from the United Nations and from these other foreign actors, all this does in their mind is reinforce the idea that Israel is just a colonial outpost, that its only reason for being there and the only basis for it even arriving here is because of foreign actors wanting to influence you know, things on the ground in the Middle East. So I think this reinforces a very negative and detrimental message, and most people don't realize it as they're talking about it, that that is how they sound. Right, that they're presenting Israel as somehow serving the interests of the imperial powers, like that we are meant to be an outpost of Western civilization in an otherwise uncivilized neighborhood. And then just the idea that our legitimacy comes from the British, comes from the US, comes from the UN. The idea that you know we would not have been a state or that we were never an actual people worthy of you know national rights or national aspirations if it were not due to the influence of foreign powers, this is very much reinforced in the Arab psyche every time Israel or, frankly, many American Jews talk about this topic this way. Right. And I don't think it matters if we're speaking about UN Resolution 181 or the Balfour Declaration or the San Remo Conference, which promised us larger, more expansive borders than UN General Assembly Resolution 181, meaning you have the partition plan, which Jews who tend to favor a two-state solution might feel comfortable with. And then you have the San Remo Conference, which kind of ratified the Balfour Declaration, which offered the Jewish people much more expansive borders. So you have some Jews who feel more comfortable with that. I think the point we need to make is that it doesn't matter what the borders are. The very fact that we're looking to foreign powers for our legitimacy or to tell us what our borders are or should be is already in and of itself problematic and an expression of our deep internal slavery. So, right, and just using that as the basis of morality in general is right. really problematic that, you know, we have our own identity, our own aspirations, our own vision for what our place in the world is supposed to be, um, you know, as a functioning state, where that state lies and what boundaries, and the idea of always seeking sort of the approval and, you know, the blessing of foreign powers, and especially those who, you know, Obviously, every, uh, every entity, every country has their own strategic interests, and that's fine. What's problematic or what's very dangerous is in this conversation when most Jews or even Israel in sort of a public relations Hasbara, you know, uh, space, 
doesn't bother to acknowledge that or publicly state it. That, you know, it's fine that the European Union has its own strategic interests and goals. It's fine that those are different than ours. What's not fine is when we tend to conflate them or seek the approval of the European Union or even the United States for that matter to advance on our own ambitions and positions. Right. I think it's important to acknowledge that most nations begin with their own interests and then make alliances based on those interests. And Israel seems to be the only nation I could think of who first decides who it would like to be friends with, who it would like to be allied to, and then kind of recreates its own interests in order to fit into the interests of that friend it desires. Yeah, I mean, I think we can see that certainly in Israel's early history, you know, allying with France for 20 years or having France as its, you know, real chief uh, strategic and military partner, you know, from, uh, you know, the early 1950s through 1967. And, uh, you know, obviously the United States for the past uh, half century, uh, it's very much been linked to, I think the way I've heard you describe it before is sort of superpower patronage. That was Ben-Gurion's doctrine. He had the superpower patronage doctrine, which basically was, as you said before, you know, kind of taking this exile mentality of our survival being dependent on the approval and goodwill of the Kaiser or the Duke or the Tsar or whoever, and just applying it to the global stage and saying Israel as the Jew on the international stage requires the protection and the goodwill of a powerful Gentile nation in order for us to be able to survive and thrive, et cetera. Yeah. And by the way, you know, I think one thing this also does, and it's not something that, um, you know, frankly, I don't think many Jews in the United States think about, and you can tell me if you think Israelis even consider this, is, you know, the more in which we associate ourselves as being sort of the partner, the sidekick of a foreign entity, whether it's the United States or any other country or global body, certainly reinforces a message, in my opinion, to Palestinians that why should we deal directly with Israel when they're not even making their own choices? They're not even controlling their own destiny. It's really these outside forces that effectively tell them what to do, how to behave, what its borders are, what its policies are. So, you know, let's not talk with them directly. Let's go to these other, you know, sources of influence. They're the ones who have control at the end of the day anyway. Right. No, that's a good point. Uh, I'm not sure if you've seen this, but as of today, it looks as if Israel is headed to another national election. Yes, I did see that. I'm not so bothered by the news. I actually, uh, I'm a little bit excited, to be honest. But I thought it appropriate that uh, we bring on a, a guest I've had on quite a few times already on the show, political analyst Mordechai Taub. Mordechai and I do not see eye to eye on every political issue, but I would say that he really is one of the sharpest political analysts when it comes to the game of politics in this country. And I think it's always good to get his perspective on what's going on in Israel's political system. Mordechai, welcome to the show. Good to be with you. Well, as I'm sure you've seen, we're headed to elections. We sure are. Right. So um, maybe you can just help us out here, like break down, first of all, in whose interests these elections are. Uh, clearly, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu is not interested in going to elections. He seems to have been trying tirelessly to prevent them until now. Uh, and now that we're going, uh, I'm expecting a very sensational election cycle. I don't know about you. But maybe you can kind of break down for us the different players, where they stand, and what they hope to gain or expect to lose in this coming election. Uh, Yair Lapid has a major interest. Um, he can clearly up his numbers in the coming election. The Yeshatid party. The Yeshatid party. He can clearly push himself as a national leader. He may not get in this time, but he can position himself as the alternative. 
And that's what everybody's trying to do for years, to portray themselves as a Netanyahu alternative. Um, so clearly he has an interest. Lieberman has an interest. Lieberman believes there's a slight chance that he can get into another, the next government and the Haredim can be out, which is which is ideal dream at this point. What's interesting about that is for years, the Haredi parties were his close allies. At this point, he's um, taken the position of being an anti-Haredi party, and he's realized that he doesn't have much potential outside his his very clear base of um, Russian immigrants and the children of Russian immigrants. So you don't expect his posture towards the Haredim to change or soften at this point? Not at all. Not at all. He's been moving around too much. Um, there's no room on the political map for that because he calls himself right wing and he needs to, he needs to grab the anti-Haredi right wing vote. And he knows there's a significant numbers out there and he would rather push for this or else he's just uh, Bennett. You know, Bennett, Bennett is pushing himself as right wing and going along with the Haredim in the coming government. When you say right wing, you mean uh, nationalist, the land of Israel, on socioeconomic issues? No, no, I mean nationalist, land of Israel. Right, I mean, we don't have to get into the woods on this, but I really think that these labels, you know, whether it's right wing, left wing, religious, secular, are, are very foreign labels and don't accurately describe a lot of the Israeli populace. I think we okay. need to come up with better terms that are probably more uh, matim, more uh, how do you say matim, appropriate, more fitting, uh, right? More fitting for our culture, for our civilization, uh, because you know even this concept of there's religious people, there's secular people. That that's a very kind of um, it, it's a notion that's kind of born out of Christian civilization was to a certain extent important. I, I would agree with you, but in in the political vernacular of of Israeli politics, these terms are still used. Yeah. I would, in, in a uh, societal reality, I agree with you. But you will find part of those representatives who are identified as the left in Israel on nationalist issues are right wing on socioeconomic issues. So when one says right wing um, in Israel, one means uh, solely on national and land of Israel issues. Right. Uh, unfortunately, they are still used. And I think that's often very confusing for outsiders. Like Justin, for example, we have on the show, you know, Justin is co-hosting with me and uh, he is a representative of diaspora Jewry with us right now. So, Justin, would you say that these labels can sometimes be confusing for diaspora Jews who live in a different political context when they look at Israeli issues, when they hear that one politician is right wing or left wing? Do they automatically contextualize that within the U.S. framework or other frameworks? 100 percent. You know, I think these identities very much are superimposed. These labels are meant to kind of fit on like a template you know, taking a sort of a very, not only just a very binary U.S. system and trying to make sense of it, you know, when uh, applying it to different sort of multi-party uh, parliamentary style democracies and uh, legislatures. But uh, yeah, just the idea that, um, you know, I think, you know, to even uh, kind of zoom out a little bit, you know, we've been hearing for years as far as the breakdown of relations and connections between U.S. Jews and Israeli Jews. Uh, with that of not understanding each other or having differences in opinions on core certain values, 
Uh, I think a lot of that does stem from how much of U.S. Jewry sees itself uh, within an American context and is, to one degree or another, expecting that reciprocated on some level in Israel, whether it's through its institutions, through its populace. Um, but yes, there is, in my opinion, a sort of a general assumption that what we would say as Republican, conservative, right-wing in the United States in Israel means Likud, Yamina, uh, Shas, anything in that direction. And conversely, anything that would, could be described as liberal, progressive, Democrat automatically means blue and white, Yeshatid, merits, labor, you name it. I mean, you could even throw the joint list in there for that matter. But, you know, that's just the whole idea of that the Israeli system and the Israeli identities that come into play when it comes to ideology, when it comes to politics, is vastly different than the United States. Um, a number of the parties have an interest in holding on to a past that is evolving. Israel used to be a very group society. The people's major identity was the group they belonged to. These groups, which predated the state, were what created parties, which actually predated the state. And these parties want to justify their continuation. And it, when you make the argument that these groups really don't exist, many of these parties will not have a reason to exist anymore as we see as what's happening with the decline of the Labour Party. And, and the same thing, with, if you go on the other end today, maybe the Shas Party. If you make the legitimate argument that a religious Sephardi Jew should find himself, depending on his opinion on national issues and economic issues, can find himself all over the political map, which is a natural way to function, then you have no justification for their party anymore. So they have an interest in trying to sell the idea that my group exists. Um, Naftali Bennett, the head of the Amina list, tried to break out of this group meaning. He tried to create something that had specific ideas and specific opinions. But wouldn't be sectoral. Right, would not be sectoral. And you would not think of it as any particular sort of person would automatically vote for it. It didn't work. It's still a very evolving um, process. My argument is that these words, when, you know, the words that people use, uh, especially in English, but also in Hebrew, right, left, religious, secular, don't actually mean in Israel what they mean elsewhere. Meaning if you're talking about Western civilization in a Christian society, even if it's no longer so Christian, when you refer to somebody as being religious, you're talking about somebody who believes in their religion or practices their religion, whereas somebody who's secular does not. Uh, in Israeli society, I mean, just the fact that what's often called our religion is really so intertwined with our national culture and just like native way of life, that I think often a term like secular is really just substituted or a synonym for westernized. A number of the parties who, who have that label actually clearly identify with their Jewish heritage. Right. They don't want it influencing the public there. Mm -hmm. They don't want things to be closed on, on the Sabbath. And they don't want um, public buildings to be closed on the Sabbath. So they might be very Jewish. Right, that's exactly my point. And, and often, by the way, when they oppose things being closed on the Sabbath, on, on what we call Shabbat, I don't think we need to say Sabbath, on, on Shabbat, they're doing so for reasons of profit. 
you know, part of Westernization, especially in Israeli society, is really influenced by this global profit-driven system that tells us, wait a minute, you're going to shut down one day a week? And I think that's even very threatening to a lot of the high-tech companies that use our country as essentially a sweatshop for R&D. They say, well, what do you mean you're not going to work on Saturday? I mean, part of the mentality, part of the culture of most of these tech companies is to treat your company, whether it's Facebook or Yahoo or Google or Amazon or whatever, like you're supposed to be, you know, rocking the sweatshirt and going to the gym at Google. And, you know, you're, you're supposed to be like a passionate team member that doesn't take a break, that brings your, your work home with you. And I think that stands in opposition to this value that the people of Israel brought into the world that uh, every week people deserve one day of rest. And when people speak about having things all opened up on Shabbat so I can go to the mall, I think it really exposes the privilege of the people making that argument because, okay, great, I want to be able to take a bus to the mall on Shabbat during my day off, but that's not taking into consideration the person who has to drive that bus who's forced to work or the person who has to work retail in the mall that day. But back to elections. Who has an interest in this election happening and who does not? Yeah, as we mentioned, uh, Lapid has and, and Lieberman has... Lieberman's Yisrael Beitenu party, Netanyahu realized that he needed elections soon because he didn't want to give the rotation to Gantz. He had a deal with Gantz that there would be a rotation of who would be prime minister at a certain point. And he needed a reason for the government to fall um, before that time occurred. And now Gantz has called, said he's supporting the call for elections. And this is great for Netanyahu so he can try to sell the elections as being initiated by Gantz and not by him. Mordechai, can you talk a little more about what you were saying before as far as uh, Lieberman's position within Yisrael Beitenu and certainly you know, how they've been able to kind of play kingmaker in the past or you know, make or break a coalition? You know, the biggest stumbling block, it appears from my perspective when it comes to Lieberman, is he's always been caught in this dynamic in which he doesn't want to serve in a government with Haredim in it, and he's also unwilling to do so in a way that would further empower the Arabs in the joint list. At what point do you think he's going to have to make a decision between the two, or what are his options in order to choose neither? We must realize where he's coming from. Lieberman came from classically good. He then ran with religious parties. He then moved to position himself as a centrist party. He thought there were all these extra votes in the center, and he was going to form a coalition with Kahlon and Lapid, and he was going to be prime minister. Um, with time, he realized that he had burnt himself, so he's not an alternative to Netanyahu on the right. He's clearly not center, and so he's taken a block that he realizes is reasonably secure. And that block, as we mentioned earlier, is now he, um, Moshe Leon, the mayor of Jerusalem, is a product of, Moshe Leon didn't come out of the public. He wasn't this very popular public figure. He was something that was an agreement between um, Shas, the Haredi parties, and Lieberman. He was their coalition's um, product. And therefore, he's, he for years dealt with them and made deals with them, and he did that very well. At some point, their relationship went sour. How much of that is political and how much of that is personal? I don't know. Israel's a very small country. 
And there were some very aggressive attacks on Lieberman and his, um, you know, that he was anti-religious and things of that sort. And therefore, he's clearly staked out that area of the map that's anti-Haredi. Will you see him in the future sitting in a government with Haredi parties? Absolutely. Absolutely, there will be a justification. And he'll see that because he needs to have, he needs to go back in at some point. You're saying Lieberman doesn't plan to sit out the next government. He next. I don't know the next government or the one after, but he can't sit out forever. He can't sit out. His party and and many parties are based on having their people throughout the system. And the longer he's out, the longer he's not able to put his people in the throughout the system. You mean provide jobs to his loyalists? Right. Yeah, or it, those it, who can who can who can support his political agenda. Meaning it's important listeners understand that, that part of going into a governing coalition is not just having this ministry or that ministry, it's also the ability to give jobs to your people, to the activists right. in your party. Right, and in some of Lieberman's positions, those are serious jobs. Those are ambassadors and council generals when he was foreign minister that are sitting in their positions till today. It's, it's clearly... Um, something that he needs he needs at some point to go back in. He can't be he can't be some sort of permanent opposition party. And he needs to um, identify himself differently than Lapid because what's his pro- the problem is Lapid is his charismatic um, personality and they're going after some of the same votes. They're going after a lot of the same votes and he has to uh, somehow position himself in a different manner. And many. Analysts have called for his demise for many years, and he's managed to survive, and not just barely survive, survive with eight, nine seats. That's a significant, that's a, ba- a base plus. Right. In other words, yeah, a, a majority of that is his base, and then there is a, um, a base plus, and he's managed to do that over years which means he's a quite successful politician. Mm-hmm. I don't think he was always, I think there was only this last round where he was really the kingmaker or not the kingmaker. I don't think that was his, his permanent position. He wasn't there on the border all that time. For many years, he was a given that he would be part of um, any national government that existed. So let's move on to Naftali Bennett and the Yamina party, because when you look at Israel's political map today, I think it's very clear that the big shift that uh, we should be expecting in the next election is that Yamina will grow from its current five seats into what appears to be, according to polls, low 20s. Or even mid-teens would be a great success. Right, which might be more realistic because Yamina Bennett specifically tends to always underperform when you compare the polls to what he actually gets on election day. Here's Bennett's potential big error. He, what he should be doing is run for Yamina votes. What he might be tempted to do is run as a prime minister or candidate. And there are a lot more voters that, you know, don't want a, um, a non-Netanyahu government, but are a little tired of Netanyahu and they would like some sort of alternative or they don't want Netanyahu that strong. Um, that's a large number of voters. I don't know if all of those voters will clearly want Naftali Bennett as prime minister. So he should focus on a strategic level. He should focus on, on simply running to increase Yamina's votes. And if luck hits him and he gets into the 
mid-20s, maybe. Maybe you can put together a government. And we should probably expect in this election that Netanyahu will run a nationalist campaign and will primarily be competing with Bennett, correct? Exactly, exactly. For, for two reasons. First of all, he's not scared of an alternative government from Lapid. And he, he's not scared. So he's going to be focusing on his right. He has a long-term personal problem with Bennett, and he wouldn't want him being a partner of his. He would want him a junior assistant, but he clearly wouldn't want him as a partner in the government. And that's what he's looking at right now. If Netanyahu, if the Likud gets high 20s and Bennett with the Amina party gets low 20s, we're talking about essentially a partnership in the next coalition. Exactly. Okay, now, um, I don't know if you're aware, but uh, the United States just recently had a presidential election. I heard some rumors. Okay, now, Justin, you, you're on the ground there in the United States. And, uh, you know, from my perspective here, just living on this mountain and looking at uh, social media and uh, the internet, it was a very contentious election and maybe still is a very contentious election. But I was expecting it to be a lot more chaotic than it actually was. I was honestly expecting there to be more instances of violence. I think that the United States has become extremely polarized in recent years. And, you know, I'm surprised that the election kind of came and, and went without descending into like chaotic violence. Yehuda, let me mention where the chaotic violence has played a major role. Trump is taking certain cases to the Supreme Court mm -hmm. right now. Let me put aside the legal questions. You're sitting with the Supreme Court, four justice, justices that are liberals. Um, Senator Roberts is, is moved into the middle. Now, what, what happens is you, you, have, uh, you essentially have five conservative constitutional justices that exist. Now, they know that if they make a decision that puts a state in contention, they call for re-elections, or they call for anything in Trump's favor that breaks up this message of it's a definite Biden presidency, they know the, the, the left, not the liberals, the left has made it clear they're going to riot, okay? They know that if they were to make such a decision, that they know there will be riots. That is at a certain level, perhaps, influencing the decision-making process. And they will look for any justification, irrespective of the, of the merits of the case, um, not to support Trump, and not being the court that, that led to riots in the streets in the United States. I see it a little differently. I think that, first okay. of all, those justices are sitting on the bench, the big uh, corporate tax cuts, uh, that Trump initiated are there. I think Trump has, for the most part, outlived his usefulness to the Republican Party. I think in the next election, in 2024, we should probably expect to see somebody, maybe even to the right of Trump, but more competent, less of a clown running on the Republican ticket. But I think that they're, they're very happy to have had all the gains that Trump brought to the GOP, including the base, including this kind of like wacko conspiratorial base that's now part of the Republican Party. And I think that you'll see politicians in the GOP increasingly playing to that base. Yeah, and at least for what's worth, from where I'm sitting right now, uh, you know, it, I feel like there's definitely been sort of a transition in terms of how people are approaching this, how they're thinking about it, and certainly due to COVID and due to uh, media silos, obviously, uh, my ability to interact and to gain information from the outside world is, you know, the same as uh, pretty much anyone else's. But uh, I think we're at a point in which 
whether Trump himself has exhausted these legal avenues to overturn the results in some of these states like Pennsylvania, Arizona, Georgia, uh, seems to have gone beyond that now. And now it's kind of bracing for what happens next. Uh, you know, you've seen little overtures as far as initiating the transition to a Biden administration. I know there's a lot of uh, sort of media publications referring or referencing the idea of whether or not Trump will try to pardon himself, members of the administration, his kids, for example. So all that at least indicates to me that we're planning for what happens January and beyond with Biden as president and not Trump as president. But I think there's something else also at play here uh, that we've seen not just now with the elections, but even leading up to them, you know, as the mythology of American exceptionalism and the reality of U.S. policies and behavior grow further apart and the gap widens and the empire is further and further in decline, you know, many people in the United States who were raised to really see the U.S. as like the greatest civilization in human history and a force for good on the world stage are suddenly forced to either learn how U.S. policy and the current profit-driven global order actually functions or to fill in the gaps between the fantasy and reality with conspiracy theories. And over the last few years, especially in the months leading up to this recent US election, more and more people are feeling disenfranchised and are seeking answers. I think we've seen a steep upsurge in conspiratorial thinking among previously quote unquote normal US citizens, like people who never in the past would have kind of dabbled in the type of conspiracy theories that we see being propagated today. I know people who were convinced that the Democratic Party was really running some kind of pedophile ring or pushing some kind of globalist agenda. And these conspiracy theories, which used to be on the fringes, have become more and more mainstream. And I think that's the result of this gap between the fantasy of what the United States has told itself it is and claims to be versus the reality of how it's being experienced, even by but, people. But every country has a national narrative. Sure. Every country, every nationality has a binding national narrative. Right. And, We're and living, the national living narrative time period. is objectively, is you, one, one can challenge that narrative everywhere objectively. Mm -hmm. um, if you go, if you go, just to when you go, visited London and you saw statues to people who essentially what they did is they conquered and they enslaved other nations, mm -hmm. which means that if you're going to deal at that level, then there's no justification clearly for almost any Western European country. Okay. There are a couple of things I don't think you're taking into consideration. First of all, is the fact that for better or worse, we're just living through a historical moment where the U.S. national narrative is being challenged to the extent that it is and is vulnerable. That's number one. And number two, we have to differentiate, you know, the French have done a lot wrong and the English have done a lot wrong and the Russians have done a lot wrong. And that history is full of different nations doing things wrong. But I think the criticisms of the United States go a step further because the U.S. in its essence on a structural level from its inception is really a settler colony born on the back of slavery and genocide. And we're talking about its very inception, not that it's a nation that made some mistakes. We're talking about what it is, what it has been in its essence since its inception. Without shifting gears too harshly, but uh, maybe to make this a little more contextually relevant, you know, for a lot of our audience, you know, we were talking about before, like what's going on in the United States and how people are experiencing it. 
I uh, kind of want to shift and talk about specifically how Jews are experiencing the United States today, uh, certainly in a very different way than, you know, speaking from personal experience, my parents and grandparents did. Uh, certainly sort of the narrative of what it meant to be a Jew in America is radically different back then than it was today. And even uh, recently, I had a conversation with someone that was, uh, I, I appreciate the way that they described this. It's not that I hadn't thought of this before or hadn't articulated that way, but I don't think I probably spent too much time talking about it, is that our history in Galut under the oppression, the mercy, and you know, pretty much uh, at the will of foreign powers that could do whatever they wanted with us, we've kind of grown accustomed as Jews to thinking our condition is good as long as it's not too bad. Meaning if there aren't pogroms going on, that means things are going well, uh, as opposed to you know things objectively going well in its own right. Um, and so I think when a lot of people think of sort of the latter 20th century in the United States as it pertains to Jews, because we went from a place in which, all right, there were no longer quotas as to which colleges we could go to. There were no restrictions on what towns or country clubs we could be a part of anymore. Then, you know what, we've been fully accepted. We are quote unquote white. And, you know, we have the same privileges and status as any other group. And I think in this initially in a post 9-11 era, and certainly what we're seeing now, a lot of Jews in this country are waking up to seeing that, you know, the golden age of American Jewry, however you like to phrase it, it wasn't really all that it was written out to be. And certainly that image is kind of falling apart in the minds of a lot of people. Mm -hmm. Do you see a lot of people in the organized Jewish community in the U.S. right now gravitating towards these conspiracy theories? Do you see them more uh, questioning the very structures of the you know, United States political system? Or do you see them kind of just like thinking about Aliyah, maybe? Just realizing we have somewhere else we can go. Let's get out of here before it all sinks. Yeah, all of the above. I've seen people, you know, especially on the Republican-Democrat divide, people for the most part are bending in the direction that, you know, their political winds are taking them. Meaning those that are traditionally Republican, identify as conservative, uh, you know, who would always vote for the GOP. Those types of people, not exclusively and not entirely, are drifting more and... I don't want to use uh, conspiracy, you know, to kind of paint a broad brush because there are different, you know, ideas that are out there. Some may have more legitimacy than others. Right, right. But, but by the way, that's part of the problem. I mean, when I talk about conspiracy theories, I was mostly speaking about the QAnon stuff that people have been getting into and, you know, the pedophile rings and some of the globalist conspiracies. But I think part of the problem is we've come to the realization, maybe now with the internet, more people come to this realization more often, but it's clear that people in power have done some pretty bad things. You know, we can talk about COINTELPRO, we can talk about, you know, Operation Paperclip, you know, we can talk about a lot of the CIA's behavior around the world. And people are aware of this. And if you are aware of all this, then some of these conspiracy theories don't sound so far off. And, and by the way, I'm not against buying into any conspiracy theory on principle. I think that a lot of things that turn out to be true were conspiracy theories for decades until they were revealed to be true. I, obviously, people in power are often up to no good. And they do things in a way that is private from the public. And when people start speaking about these things and trying to shed light on them, it's usually perceived as conspiracy theory. Uh, so I'm not rejecting conspiracy theories like uh, at a hand. I'm talking about a specific set of conspiracy theories that I think 
were used very cynically by the Trump administration and the Trump campaign in order to stay in power and to galvanize a base that's actually a very dangerous base that's now very much empowered within the GOP. Right. So I would say, you know, it's only a minority of people that have gone, gotten on the QAnon train, so to speak, and, you know, conspiracy theories that are related. Those of us who don't know what you're talking about. Oh, well, I... <laughs> Okay, so QAnon, at least, you know, kind of an overall summary, we're talking about a conspiracy theory in which there is, to my understanding, someone who goes by Q, who's been kind of working deep in the government and is starting to reveal, you know, and pull back the shadow, the curtain of like what the United States government is, of what the deep state is, and that Donald Trump is helping in terms of revealing that conspiracy. Trump is like the anti-hero. Trump is the kind of righteous crusader, tearing down the U.S. establishment, challenging the elites, and that's such a threat to the system that all of the powerful conspirators in the U.S. government and the deep state have to come together to stop Trump from remaining in office. Get yes, it? I think that's a good description of it. So yeah, I would say most people are that I associate with, that I obviously get to see on social media, are not you know, going that far when it comes to sort of what their beliefs are or where the political winds have taken them. I would say it's more encompassing of things that we hear as far as that, you know, the media is the opposition, that the Democrats are the opposition or the enemy as opposed to another political party. I think that is more common discourse. And conversely, for those Jews who are typically would identify as progressive, yes, I think they are much more sort of conscious and living in a paradigm in which, you know, everything about America is sin and everything needs to be addressed and there's a full reckoning coming. So that is, I think, part of the major divide that's being experienced, not only within the Jewish community, but certainly the broader U.S. population. Right. The irony is that in most cases, Trump aside, maybe he's a bit of an anomaly, but I think in most cases, when you have a political race between a candidate from the Democratic Party and a candidate from the Republican Party, they're usually taking campaign contributions from the same corporations and the same lobby groups and are essentially going to be beholden to the same people and the same special interests when they're in office. I think history has cleaned up um, a lot of past presidents and uh, office holders. I've got to be careful of how I'm speaking of those that are gone and departed. But if we just look in the 20th century, there were a number of presidents who were elected who had, as they were moving up the political ladder, had significant ties to organized crime. Mm -hmm. What happens is that once they become president, irrespective of how they reached that presidency, they're judged on different issues. Um, Biden, it looks most likely that he will be the next president of the United States, irrespective of to the extent that there was fraud and um, dishonesty going on in, in his election, he will be president. And because he will be president, in history will not judge him while Joe Biden got in because they stole votes in Philadelphia and, and, and in Detroit. History will judge him based on how he behaves in office. On the large major issues. And, and you look at that. If you look at history, you look at um, Kennedy and Johnson, their legacies are the big issues from civil rights going into a war to leaving a war. And therefore, you know, as much as, as a large part of the American population is very sure that Biden stole the presidency, Biden will be judged, as Trump is judged today, on how he dealt with COVID or didn't uh, deal with COVID. Before we wrap up, there is one major issue. For me, it's a major issue, um, very personal issue, I think, in many ways, that has come up in the last couple of weeks, and that is the freedom of uh, Jonathan Pollard. 
Pollard was a U.S. Naval Intelligence Officer, um, a Jewish U.S. Naval Intelligence Officer in the early 1980s, discovered information that Israel was going to be attacked with chemical weapons, tried to bring this information to his superiors, uh, was essentially told that this information would not be shared with Israel despite a 1983 memorandum of understanding between the state of Israel and the United States. Uh, essentially, you know, from what I understand, the U.S. intelligence community and the Reagan administration were interested in making Israel increasingly dependent on the United States when it came to matters of defense. In any case, Pollard made a choice. Uh, he chose to uh, take the initiative and share this information with the state of Israel. In my opinion, he essentially corrected the sin of American Jews during the Holocaust. You know, during the Holocaust, during World War II, the American Jewish leadership was essentially instructed by FDR to remain silent about Jewish issues, to keep their communities in the dark about what was taking place in Europe. And we're told, you guys are good Americans. And as good Americans, we hope that you will be loyal to the American war effort and not make noise about Jewish issues as Hitler is doing uh, over in Germany. And I think that this leadership, obviously, we're talking about a moment in the Jewish experience in the United States where, as Justin pointed out before, we weren't fully included in what's called whiteness. We weren't yet part of the power structure. We were really a very vulnerable immigrant group that was trying to achieve upward mobility and inclusion into American society and therefore, to a certain extent, betrayed the Jews of Europe being systematically massacred. And I see Jonathan Pollard as somebody who very much corrected that sin. He had a very similar choice to make, and he chose to side with his people, not with the US intelligence community. And to be honest, if it wasn't even his people, if he saw that Guatemala was going to be attacked, um, or you know, Taiwan was gonna be attacked, or, or, or Venezuela was going to be attacked, I think that uh, an argument could be made that the right thing to do would have also been to share that information. But certainly when it's his people and with all the baggage that comes with the Jewish experience in the United States, I very much look at Jonathan Pollard as really for decades, the only free Jew in the United States, uh, the only Jew who really made a choice as to who he is and where he belongs, yet at the same time was not able to relocate. He was imprisoned for 30 years on parole for five years with an ankle bracelet and conditions that didn't allow him to really live his life or move home here. And I think it's really exciting that now he's finally free and Bezret Hashem wants his wife Esther is well enough. They're going to come and join us here in the land of Israel as part of Israeli society. And I hope uh, as a hero, really, I hope that we treat Jonathan properly as somebody who's been on hunger strike for him numerous times, who organized several protests for him. I can't even express how deeply moved I am by the thought of being able to see him in person, you know, hopefully post COVID, give him a hug and really welcome him to Israel where he belongs. I don't know if you guys have any thoughts on this or any thoughts on some of the reactions. Like, for example, former Prime Minister Ehud Olmert came out with an article that he doesn't want Pollard to make Aliyah. And several Israelis have come out with pieces about how this is embarrassing. You know, by celebrating Pollard as a national hero, we're, we're spitting in the face of the United States or, you know, we owe an apology to the Jews of the United States. I don't know, Justin, are Jewish organizations in the U.S. saying anything about Pollard? First off, I think it's interesting sort of the contrast that you offered had the country been Guatemala, you know, Pollard, even if, uh, you know, caught, arrested, convicted, imprisoned, would be viewed possibly more as a conscientious objector or something closer to Edward Snowden than, you know, a conversation about dual loyalty when it comes to Jews in the United States. But, uh, you know, as it pertains to his release, 
you know, I think it's really interesting that, you know, whether we're talking about just sort of the passionate Jewish pro-Israel community on the ground in the United States or certainly organized um, organizations and entities that are very responsive to a lot of the news that goes on in Israel and Jewish issues, I would have to say that the response to Pollard has kind of just been deafening silence. Uh, I don't know for some organizations if, like you said, that deals with not wanting to being viewed as spitting in the face of the U.S. or making certain donors uncomfortable or just creating a situation for themselves that they'd like to avoid for whatever sort of image reasons. But given the fact that you have many Jews in the U.S. within the pro-Israel community who are very active and very vocal when it comes to a lot of Israeli-related issues, whether those issues are cultural, economic, political, diplomatic, uh, and these are people that really get deep into the weeds when it comes to what they think about Israel and their interest and what goes on in Israel. When it comes to this particular issue, it's been deafening silence from what I've seen, uh, which I think speaks a lot to what you were describing as far as the discomfort that a lot of Jews have in the U.S. as it pertains to not wanting to rock the boat of a U.S.-Israel relationship, uh, but also the idea that you know, the status of Jews in foreign countries historically has always been one that has not been very solid, one that could change overnight to something absolutely terrifying and horrible, whether that is, you know, from pogroms to, you know, people being stripped of their assets, their citizenship. And we've seen expulsion as an example. I'm not saying that American Jews are concerned that's what's going to happen to them, but I think the psychology still maintains a grip on a lot of Jews when it comes to how they approach issues of Israel and their host country. I want to follow up on that, on the myth of confidence. Jerry Springer, if you recall, he used to have this provocative afternoon talk show. I remember. No, in, so the, in the United States. And Jerry Springer told a story about his parents once and the old car, his father, who was in his 90s. You know, these are people who were born in the United States and Jerry Springer, and he didn't really bring up his Jewish heritage often. And he said his, his father kept an old car in the garage. And on his birthday every year, he would take the car out. You know, he'd start it up during the year and then he'd take it out for a ride on his birthday for an hour around the neighborhood. And as he was getting up in years and he was um, less functional physically, Jerry began to worry. And he spoke to his mother and he said, Mom, can you try to convince him to stop this habit of taking the car out? And his mother tried and was unable to. And Jerry decided he was going to go and he was going to speak to his dad. And he told him, Dad, you know, you're not as physically able and, and your reactions are slower. And he told him, son, I have to do this because when they come after us, I need to be able, to, we need to be able to run away. And I think there is this, just in the background of many Jews in the United States, you know, you'll find that they make sure their passport is updated. I once met on a business matter, I met a fellow in middle America, and he told me that uh, he always told his sons when they got married and his son-in-laws and daughter-in-laws, that he's, he doesn't get involved in their lives, but he wants one thing, he wants everybody in their household to have updated passports and $2,000 in cash so they can get to the airport so they can get away if they need to. And I'm listening to these people, and as a son of my, my late parents were Holocaust survivors, we didn't grow up like that. Um, you know, we're, we're outwardly Jewish people, we're a yarmulke, 
There was never this discussion, never this issue. What do you do if things get bad? Okay. I, there was not part of the society I function, and I, and I actually met this feeling more among those who seemed to be unaffiliated and they seemed outwardly to be more assimilated. And therefore, there clearly, clearly is that fear among many Jews of the Pollard issue, and they would just hope it would go away. They cringe every time that his name, in, in any context, is mentioned in the media. They just hope the entire issue would go away. Right. I think it's safe to say that uh, Pollard is very much the antithesis to APEC. You know, APEC exists to ferment this idea that Israel is the Robin to America's Batman that the two nations are joint at the hip, unbreakable allies, etc. whereas the Jonathan Pollard issue forces Jews and others as well to ask some very difficult questions about the relationship. You know, it's funny, all of these people who are so quick to condemn Pollard for his act of treason you know, against the United States never ask, well, what was the U.S. doing? Like, why was Pollard in such a position to begin with? You know, what was going on that he felt he had to act. I very much see Pollard as a key to freeing the Jewish people in the United States, to liberating Jews psychologically in the U.S., and if they're brave enough to courageously confront the issue and not hide from it and not uh, cringe, as you said, but actually ask themselves true questions and come to real conclusions about who they are, where they belong, and Bezrat Hashem, they'll come to the conclusion that they should come home and join us here in the land of Israel. Uh, thank you so much, Mordechai, for joining us. Justin, thank you for uh, co-hosting with me. Thank you, Yehuda. Happy to join. This is Yudaha Kohen, Vision Movement, and you are listening to the Next Stage Podcast. Please go and subscribe at all the relevant platforms, Spotify, TuneIn, iTunes, SoundCloud, etc. Leave us a positive rating, review. It really does help get our message out there. And if you want to check out the show notes, you can go to visionmag.org backslash the next stage for one.